Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of Guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. As you can probably already tell, um, this isn't the Games Are For Everyone autosave special. Um, unfortunately, I've just been I've been extremely busy the past couple of weeks, and there are lots of interviews to stitch together. So I just I haven't been able to find the uh, fifty or sixty hours needed to put this together. Maybe not quite fifty or sixty hours, but simply I've I've just I've not been able to uh, have a, have a chance to sit down and put it all together. Um, but it will be coming soon, and it will be worth the wait. I believe there's a lot of amazing people on that show, and I'm very excited about it. Um, so this is I'm afraid this is just a, a regular old interview episode. But what an episode. I'm very excited about today's guest. Um, now, for long-time listeners of the show, you'll know how much I love Final Fantasy XII. Um, not only do I think it's the best Final Fantasy, I think it's one of the greatest video games ever made. Uh, so I was very excited to talk to my guest today, Alexander O. Smith, uh, because he was a translator for Final Fantasy XII. Um, and, you know, essentially shaped the, the Western version of the game from from casting the the voice actors and and in some cases you know making very bold choices that really you know really diverged from the the Japanese original and it was just it was such a treat to talk to um Alex about about the process of working on that and you know as well as all the other games he's worked on he he was a translator for other Final Fantasy games like um Final Fantasy X and X2 he worked on the Phoenix Wright games um also you know, old Sega games, like he started at Sega originally. He worked on like a Dreamcast fighting game called Rival Schools, which uh, I don't know if you remember, but it was it was great fun. It was a lot. It was it was just really wonderful to chat to um, Alex. And also, like, I haven't had any translators on the show before. So, you know, looking at games through that lens, it, it just offers another unique perspective, I think. And, and Alex has, has got such a... Um, I think this is a common thread amongst you know amongst people I've had on the show, and I guess people who who design things, and I'm I'm sure it's common amongst the people who listen to the show as well. He's he's just very inquisitive, and and he he loves really digging into a subject. And for him, when he was younger, translation uh, was that subject. So he so he's just he's immensely um, immensely fun to listen to, and, and very passionate about the the subject. And also, there's a weird kind of diversion all about uh, Wales, which was which surprised me very much. I'm from Wales, and I wasn't expecting to be talking about the Welsh language with uh, an American who lives in Japan and worked on the Final Fantasy games. Uh, so yes, it's a wonderful chat. I really enjoyed it. I've been I've been speaking to a lot of people recently. I've kind of I've been recording a lot of episodes. There's some very very exciting guests coming up in the next few months. Um, I, I can't wait to share them with you. But one of the things that I've noticed in in you know, but because of the nature of the show, right? This is an interview show, so every week. Uh, a new guest will tweet about the show and you know fans of that guest will maybe listen for the first time which is which is a wonderful way of you know building an audience obviously but one of the things i've noticed with people you know tweeting at me and talking to me about the show and sending me messages is that if people you know join the show maybe maybe people start listening to episode 50 or 51 they don't necessarily go back and listen to the old episodes and you know someone was asking me uh if i could get kieran gillen on the show and i said well episode 18 
And I mentioned in passing to somebody the other day about how I had um, Jason Rohrer on the show. And they're like, what? Hey, did I miss that episode? And I said, maybe because they're just a bit further back down the dial. And, you know, I, I can't blame people. There's a lot of diversions. There's a lot of options in this world. But if you do like the show and if you like the kind of guests that I have, then then please do, you know, check back in the archives. There's all sorts of, of gems with, with wonderful guests like uh, Meg Janth, who, who who made 80 Days, and Cara Ellison, the wonderful uh, journalist, and Chris Crawford, you know, he founded GDC. He's one of the, the frontiersmen of the video game industry. Um, there's some really good good episodes, and if you if you, you know, I would encourage people to go back if they've only started listening uh, recently. And if you do, you know, tweet about it. And also, you know, if if you've listened to the show all the way through, maybe you know, tweet about your your favorite episodes. Um, I've realized recently I'm I'm quite poor at, at self promotion, so uh, any help listeners can provide is is always wonderfully appreciated. So if you like the show, please do share it around, tell your friends, all that good stuff. Um, and if you really like the show. Uh, I have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. Uh, if you have the money and the inclination, every donation is uh, very much appreciated and, and helps me make the show uh, as good as I possibly can. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email the show. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's forward slash checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. I'll be back next week with a new episode, maybe a new guest, maybe an autosave special. We'll see how the the week pans out. Um, But until then, thanks as always for listening. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get on with the show. Sit outside, sweat, have a beer, kind of keep warm bask in the sun kind of thing uh and i am uh i'm just a sweat generation machine for about three (laughs) months not not pleasant for anyone really um well let's do like for the for the for the sake of formality i'll do a a general introduction so alexander uh welcome to the show thanks so much for coming on if you if you don't mind would you introduce yourself sure uh i'm Alexander O. Smith online, but I respond to Alex in person. And uh, let's see, I'm a translator and sometimes writer living in Kamakura, Japan, as previously discussed, Mm -hmm. originally from the States. And yeah, I've been doing the translation thing professionally since 1996 at this point and got into games in 1998 and i really haven't looked back since so when you but, when you got into translation that were you just doing like books and things in the first instance actually the first thing i did was subtitles for kiku television in hawaii and this is a local japanese language station where they are serving the Japanese expat community in Hawaii and also the second generation, third generation, fourth generation Japanese in Hawaii. And so many of whom don't speak Japanese. And so they like to see the current shows in Japan, but they need the subtitles. So that was actually my first job is doing subtitles for Kiku television. And then those subtitles were then sold to the international channel, which was a satellite network 
in on the mainland in the U.S. And so, uh, yeah, they got around. Actually, I, I would run into Japanese teachers years later at various universities who would say, "Oh, we used that drama that you subtitled in our class," you know, that sort of thing. So that's pretty cool. They definitely got around. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, when you started working on the games, like, had you already were you already like really into video games, or was that like, oh, okay, I can do this? I, I was definitely into video games and and other games since uh, since I was uh, quite small. But it was the story aspect I think that that really intrigued me. And I was in a grad school program. I was actually in a PhD program for Japanese classical literature and. I had entered that because I wanted to follow up on some interests that I had, uh, but it was all primarily story-driven. Yeah. I was really fascinated by sort of reading these stories that people wrote a thousand years ago, and hey, you know, there's, there was a lot of stuff to identify with there. Uh, but it did feel very much divorced from reality, uh, you know, this, the whole ivory tower problem of academia. And so that game, you know, being able to bring my personal interest in games together with my more cerebral interest in storytelling uh, seemed like a great opportunity. Well, well, let's let's go back then, Alex. Um, if if you can remember, what was your your very first experience of a video game? A video game that would oh god that would have to be Brickout on an Apple. It would have been an Apple II, maybe an Apple IIe. Okay. Was that like a kind uh, of breakout clone? Yeah, it's, you know, uh, Brickout is the, um, yeah, with all those, the, the blocks in, on the top of the screen and you've got a paddle on the bottom of the screen. Yeah. And the, and the ball goes back and forth, yeah. And did that I make a, a, a big impression on you? Oh, yeah, I was totally hooked from the, the moment I started. It was actually the only game that we had on that computer. It, Ooh, uh, 1980, maybe 1979. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. It was about 1980, 1981. Yeah, somewhere around there. And was it like a family computer? It was. It was the the only computer in town, and it was at the local elementary school. Ah, okay, cool. So you play like in school. Into nobody really knew how to use it, and I got permission to go in after school ostensibly to learn how to program yeah and Classic. so i went and yeah and it was all uh uh apple soft basic is what it was called and so i was learning to do that but then i would also play some brick out and get my game on and that uh that was probably the first game game i mean there's a lot of those little handheld games going around yeah like those years. A little lcd kind of you know, exactly yeah, yeah. right right I, I remember getting really into this uh, it was like the, the game watch i think the was, game and watch uh, yeah yeah uh, i was really into the juggling one and then there's one where people or babies are jumping out of a out of a hotel and you have to catch you them with your them, yeah it's yeah, weird yeah. I, this has come up on the show before and i i, I remember playing all of these but i don't remember <laughs> anyone owning them it just seemed to be things that would kind of circulate around the playground and everyone would kind of play, but I, I don't remember who owned them. That's funny because I don't think I owned the one I played either. It, it was, it belonged to a friend uh, in, in Belgium, actually. And 
we were visiting their family and I just remember doing nothing, you know, a whole like two weeks or something in Belgium spent entirely just playing the, you know, the juggling game and the save the people jumping from the hotel game. So. That, that and eating waffles. I don't even remember. I don't think any waffles were consumed. It was all just playing game watch or whatever that was. So when was there a point where you felt that um, where you kind of took the initiative and you're like, right, I want to get this console. I want to get this computer where you're like, right, I I need more games. I want more games. Right. Actually, my parents were, I think they were against uh, consoles in general. You know, when the Nintendo uh, started making waves uh yeah. they didn't think that was a great idea because you couldn't program on it and and they sort of still bought the line that you know the computers were an educational thing and so you you know you were supposed to ostensibly be learning something on them and the games course, were something yeah. you did on the side yeah and which was you know which is true and i did i did learn quite a bit at the time but <clears throat> the first game capable machine that i got was an apple 2c which was the more svelte version of the earlier apple twos it's kind of like a thin white computer and i think it even had a monitor that was sold with it as as part of a set it wasn't yeah it wasn't one of those unified ones of course at that time but yeah and yeah that was uh, i remember playing like uh Defender and there was quite a lot of games over the years on that. I mean, that's where I first played RPG games, what you'd call RPG games, uh, Bard's Tale and Wizardry and uh, Zork. And was it like was it yours or was there like yeah, did you share with the family or anything or did anyone else no, play games mine. with you? No, I was an only child, and uh, that was my computer. We later had a Mac. Uh, for the business and then I you know I ended up playing games on that quite a bit too and did you but, did your friends have yeah. stuff like were you like I mean because the Nintendo was so prevalent in America you must have had like people around you that, that had the, the NES and things. oh yeah of course yeah and so I, I always played Zelda and uh, Super Mario Brothers at a friend's house they had Nintendo and I remember one friend with an Atari as well I, I, I lived in a very rural area okay so it, it wasn't like you could um I couldn't even walk to my friends' houses. I would have to get a ride. Uh, so there was less of that sort of neighborhood kids gathering together at the house with the with the computer thing that you or with the console thing that you hear quite a bit about. Sort of seems like the American experience of my generation. Yeah. Or going to the local arcade because we didn't have one. The the only arcade games were spotty. You know, here and there there'd be one at a gas station there was a couple at the local pizza place there were some at the local roller rink which is talk about 80s there's i don't <laughs> think those even exist anymore but the uh and i remember playing like vetrix games there arm armor alley was that the name of that one I, i've forgotten now it's yeah you're it, you know the vetrix Vec, vectrex game yeah, yeah they're beautiful right? they're yeah. kind of the scan lines yeah the scan lines yeah, 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 yeah 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 um definitely played a lot of those and oddly enough, I, I was much more into those than I was into the later games. As the graphics got better, I became less interested in arcade games. I was much more into the uh, Asteroids and the Armor Alley and, and the games like that. Why do you think? Just do you like the, the minimalism of them? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's probably true. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of Minecraft and such today. I think there's there's a lot that can be done with keeping a minimalist approach to design, but doing a really, really good job. And so it just becomes more compelling. And, and I guess it probably encourages more creativity on the part of the, the player. Yeah. Uh, especially when you're more imagination, especially when you're you know, nine or 10 and you're playing these games. Uh, the, those really bright missiles or whatever you're shooting in, in asteroids uh, from the, the Vectrex, Vectrex machine, you know, you remember those extremely bright missiles going to hit the, uh, the asteroids. I think that's very, it left a big impression on me. Um, okay. So, so you, 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 you kind of have this, this home computer and, and so you didn't have like the group of friends kind of playing games as such, but did you, do you think games then became like a part of this is who I am? I'm, I'm, I'm a kid who loves video games. I actually probably identified first with playing video games just seemed to be the thing that you did, you know, the, yeah, just like a toy. It was the, the zeitgeist. Yeah. The, and I think when I first identified with a gaming community, it was when I started playing Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, okay. Tabletop stuff. Tabletop. Yeah. Uh, and I was probably uh the balance of time spent gaming i i've spent slightly more doing tabletop games and so when did and, you start uh, doing that was that like just you know getting together with a bunch of friends and playing campaigns? yeah when i was when i was eight or so i think is when i started and that's then, quite intense because i remember trying to do that as, as a sort of nine or ten year old and just none of us could ever really get our heads around the rules I don't. Yeah, there was a lot of creativity involved. I think, (laughs) and uh, you know, there's always like that older kid that knows how to play, Uh, and so you would occasionally latch onto one of those. Um, I didn't really start seriously playing until maybe twelve or thirteen. That was that was probably the heyday. Uh, You know, the the twelve to say sixteen year old. And were you a dungeon master, or were you just happy to play? I was almost always the DM. And we did, I mean, started with D&D, of course, but then branched out. And I had some really good friends, actually, uh, one one or two of whom have gone on to work in games and work with me on, on many things. Uh, they, their mother didn't approve of some of the, uh, I, I think it was probably the, the pictures in the monster manual, you know, there's some women with boobies hanging out and yep. that sort of thing. And that's very shocking and to, to Americans uh, <laughs> and with, with the uh, 12 year old boys. And so their mother had banned them from playing D and D. So of course the first thing they did is they made their own game systems and, uh, and their mother never said anything about, uh, you know, palladium games or, or things like that. And so we, I often ran uh, TMNT teenage mutant Ninja turtles. Okay. Camp games was that a thing or uh, did you just make that up that's a thing it, it's uh it was published by palladium games uh mostly i think the primary writer is eric wujic um a, a guy I got, I got to meet later on in life but uh he they what they had done is they had adapted the world from the teenage mutant ninja turtles comic books which is a little grittier well yeah. it's a lot grittier than the uh 
than the cartoon show and the later live action stuff. And they sort of expanded that. So, you know, it's a world populated with anthropomorphic animals and, you know, what happens from there on and that sort of thing. And, and there was a bunch of settings that came with it. We often did sort of, uh, there was an after the bomb setting. So it's after like a World War Three, and so everyone's mutated, that sort of thing. Uh, and a mutant standard setting. Said, yeah, yeah, no, it was it was dark, although it's also, you know, it, you're playing animals and stuff. So there's a lot of humor and, and there's a lot of callback to children's books and that sort of thing, too. So it's it's a fun mix. I mean, I think the, the comic book was was quite brilliant. Uh, I don't know if you've ever ever read it or been exposed I've, I've to it. I've never read it. No, I mean, I know I know of it. Um there's a brilliant documentary actually that came out last year all about the history of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, oh no, kidding! I, it was it was on Netflix. I just caught it. I think it was when the last movie came out, the the, the new Michael Bay one or whatever. They had done right, this full right. kind of and it was it's an amazing story because it is just two guys decided to make this weird comic for themselves and then just it it right, kind of went viral there. before before viral was a a thing. Right, and suddenly right. they're having to like just you know borrow money so they can print more copies because they're selling so much of it is crazy right oh that's fantastic uh i'll have to check that out i yeah, yeah no I'm a, I'm a big fan um i didn't pay any attention at all to the to the cartoon or you know the stuff like that afterwards but but the comic books i was a big fan of so so okay. was that did, did you get any consoles at all or were you always just a, a computer gamer no, I never had a console. And, and it's funny because even much later, I never... God, I think the first console I owned was... This is hilarious. It's probably like an Xbox 360. <laughs> because, which isn't to say that I didn't have a console. In fact, I often did have a console at home because once I started working for game companies, I would always have consoles to play whatever I was working on. Yeah. And you end up having dev kits and stuff at home. So I did, I did have consoles, uh, but I was just never a console gamer. I, I, you know, I went on from Apple games to Mac games and essentially just did Mac games until they started to suck and then went to PC games. It's, I, I find that interesting because clearly uh, at some point you, you developed a kind of a, a fascination and a love of, of Japanese kind of culture and language. And, mm-hmm. and for me personally, like a lot of my early experiences of, of J- Japan and Japanese culture was, was purely through video games. But you don't right. really, you, you didn't get that many kind of Japanese games on, on the home computers, if any that no. I remember. Like you wouldn't None. get any of the RPGs or anything like that really. They'd be, I mean yeah. you would, but they'd be the Western versions. Right, right. Uh, how, how old are you? I'm 35. Okay, so well, that's that's probably a significant enough gap. I'm 43, so... Uh, okay. Yeah, when I was, I think, in the prime age for playing those kind of games, they weren't out yet. <laughs> so I had Wizardry and Bard's Tale and, the, you know, the, the Apple computer games. So, you know, and I consider prime age for RPG games uh, being those sort of early teen years when you've just got tons of time endless summers to play yeah 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 and so had stuff like final fantasy been available then i'm sure i would have you know gotten into it 
but I think I, did, I missed that boat. I think that stuff was coming out more as I, I got into high school and a little later on and my interests started to shift. Uh, but yeah, no, I had a very weird, you know, I was never into anime and I was never into to manga and a lot of the stuff that just a couple years, people a couple years after me who got into Japanese games and Japan, often that was their entry drug was, yeah. you know, this animated show that they watched or, you know, manga or stuff. And so I kind of slipped in just before that hit the U.S. So wait, where did the, the, the interest come from? Uh, I was just into the language. Uh, I actually was in China briefly in high school. Okay. And in, in rural China. So it's like a couple hours north of Beijing. And had gotten really interested in Chinese uh, and then switched to Japanese sort of on a whim uh, after that. I think I was upset with the way that Chinese dealt with foreign loan words. This is going to sound really nerdy, but uh, ja- Chinese, you know, uses... Chinese characters to represent foreign loan words like Coca-Cola is, you know, Coca-Cola and it's just four, four characters. Okay. And, um, that, and Japanese has a separate syllabary, like a separate alphabet to write foreign loan words. So it's just seemed a lot cleaner to me or a lot, you know, a lot more elegant of a solution than, that sounds uh, like something a programmer would say. Yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, the and so based on that, I I switched to to Japanese uh, so sort that of on was my just own. Something you could do in school, like you could you could study one of these languages, or was it just a separate thing? No, it was ent- it was entirely on my own. Uh, Chinese. There was a professor at a university nearby where I lived in Vermont, and so I, I took Chinese there like once a week just to keep it up after I came back from China. Yeah, and. Uh, but Japanese, I, I entirely studied on my own, um, just got a bunch of books and, uh, I don't even, God did it. I think it was probably cassette tapes still. <laughs> and I it was know just there was like a fascination with the, the language, like literally how the language worked as a, yeah, cause, cause yeah. I, I find that really surprising, I suppose. Cause I think for, for most kids who, who would apply themselves that much, it would be for a reason. It would be to play some unreleased Japanese game, for instance, or you know, right, translate right. a cartoon series, but just purely for the the fun of the language. That that's that's some dedication yeah. and some love of the language. Yeah, no, I think we just switched uh, in my head around age sixteen, I guess. So this is junior, well, senior year in high school. Actually, I only studied Japanese for the fi- last half year of high school, I think, uh, and I st- stopped gaming entirely for that brief period. Was there any particular uh, reason? All of my, uh, sorry? Was there any particular reason that you stopped? I, I took all the time that I spent playing D and D uh, and well, actually I guess probably another thing that helped was that one or two of the people that I played D and D with had graduated the year before. Okay. And so they had gone off to college already. So half of my gaming group had kind of left and so the, I think that was the blow to the momentum of D and D and you really need that, you know, that yeah. solid core group. And so, no, I just switched and all the time that I used to spend playing games, uh, I spent doing Japanese. Cause I mean, a lot of people do kind of, uh, a lot of people that I speak to kind of have this kind of period where they drift away from games for a bit. And it's usually yep. because weirdly, a lot of people start bands, um, 
but they're, they're, sure. you know, it's that classic kind of like, okay, I'm I'm 16 now. I'm too I'm too grown up for this kind of nonsense. Um, but you you kind of didn't. You just said no. I'm gonna I'm gonna do Japanese instead, which I don't know yeah, if I'll- that's cooler or nerdier. Maybe a bit of both. I, it's, it, it's, it, maybe it is. Uh, I definitely, I kind of wish I'd started a band. Um, I think if I had, if I had any talent on a, on a, on an instrument, that may have been where I went. Because it was definitely, I don't even understand it now. You know, looking back, because I don't do anything with that amount of focus at all <laughs> these days. But I do remember that period of, really, it was the last half year of, of high school. Uh, and that sort of it continued on into college, I think, that sort of single-mindedness. Uh, but I was just really into it. And was it like, was it, uh, I'm trying to think of um, like things that would be appealing about it. But I mean, I, there's a certain amount with, because I mean, I've tried to, to learn sort of simple Japanese things from time to time mm-hmm. um, because I play a lot of video games and, you know, you kind of right. you get exposed to them. And I remember specifically there was a... a one of the very early Picross games on the the Game Boy or maybe the Game Boy Color, mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. first set of um, challenges was the the Katakana alphabet, and so oh, I was like, okay, yeah. well, I'm learning. And and there was something about the the kind of it was almost like breaking a code, you know, which is something that's sure. okay because you've got symbols and you're like, oh, okay, I can read these things. So that in itself is not gamey, but you know, there's it's not just like repetition and. I'm learning yeah. a language. It's like, oh, this is a cool secret code, and I'm figuring out how all these symbols work. That was definitely a big part of the appeal. the 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 written language, yeah, was huge. And I had been into sort of made up written scripts and that sort of thing uh, it, it, through D and D, of course, and Tolkien and and all of that and all of that stuff. Uh, the friends that I played D and D with, you know, would would write things in elvish and that sort of <laughs> it was that sort of okay, crowd so now we're that I was the running proper with. path from it then yeah yeah so there was definitely uh, some of that in my dna already and uh i was very much into world creation that that was sort of my hook into into dming yeah um i was more interested in making the world than even more interested than making the world than than actually running the game and and playing so a lot of times you know, I'd spend 20 hours building something and then we'd play it once, you know, for one session or something like that. And so when you were doing the Japanese, did that become like your, your focus? Did you then go on to, to study that in university and things? Yeah, I did a, I think it was just about a month or maybe even less, maybe three week homestay in Osaka, Japan. So it's right next to Kyoto for the summer before university. Okay. Was that just like a trip for yourself kind of thing? Yeah, it was through an organization called YFU, Youth for Understanding. And they started actually between Germany and the U.S. after World War II to repair the ties between the two nations, that sort of thing. And I'm sure they're even bigger now, but even, even when I went on, they were already doing something like 100 countries or something. And, uh, they're, not exactly reciprocal exchanges. It's more of, you know, they hook the two countries up and then they just try to facilitate whatever they can between the two countries. And so at the time, the exchange rate was such that we uh, Americans were incredibly poor when we went to Japan. Like everything was really expensive. And so 
they couldn't even afford to send kids there for very long. And so that sort of three week, four week thing was, was about all they did. Um, Japanese kids would then go to the U S for a year. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, I was on the old end. I think youth for understanding is usually they want you in high school. Like they take you, uh, after your junior year in high school or that sort of thing in the summer. But, um, but I did it the year after senior year and I had applied to university as a Chinese major. And then when I went in was completely Japanese major. So did Japanese major and uh, computer science minor actually. And did the, like, did that, that short stay in Japan kind of like cement like this is definitely what I want to do. Like, was it amazing? Did you, did you? Oh yeah, no, it was, it was great. And the funny thing is, is I had studied entirely on my own, you know, very intensely and for about half a year, but I had never even met a Japanese person at that point in my life because, you know, I'm here, I'm in a town of, at the time, it probably had a population of 700 people spread out over quite a lot of space and no, not not even any Asians. Uh, And, you know, this is the the middle of Vermont, which is probably one of the whitest states in, in, in in the U.S., even still. Unless you count the cows, because yeah. <laughs> we, have, we have maybe more cows than people, but uh, that's uh, thankfully that's something that's changed changed now. But um, certainly when I was growing up, uh, there was just no access to any culture outside of local Vermont culture and and French French Canadian culture. That must have been an insane kind of experience then for someone like a, such a kind of. Um, like kind of low hum of activity into like, you know, one of the most sort of like thriving, yeah. busy cities in, in, in the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I did have, I definitely had a bit of culture shock. Well, no, a lot of culture shock the, the first time I went over and I'd been to China the year before. So that sort of got me ready for that. But, um, it, certainly Japan was on another level. And then my homestay family, who whom I, I love dearly and I'm still in touch with them. Uh, they uh, didn't speak any English with me. And even though the mother was an English teacher, she she did speak English, but they refused to speak any English to me. So it was this really intense sort of three or four weeks of learning Japanese, not only Japanese, but learning sort of Osaka dialect, which is a it's a subset of, of standard Japanese. And so, but, but, but with the, the, the game stuff, like once you started doing this more seriously and you go to university and even just the time you spent in Japan, did that not, were there not games that you were seeing? You're like, oh, this would be a good, a good way in and a good way to practice, you know, like these mammoth RPG games. That, that to me feels like a perfect way to kind of work on the language. My homestay family had a Nintendo or Famicom, uh, Famicom as they're called in Japan. And I, we did have some games on there, but they were all Twitch games. Okay. They didn't do any. And actually, I had a little, um, I had a bit of a Twitch game streak in, uh, God, it must have been junior year of high school where I got really into Tetris. And I know Tetris doesn't really seem like a Twitch game, but the way I played it was well, if you definitely play it fast enough. Yeah, 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 exactly. I would always crank it up to nine. And the uh, I actually won the the 
Gen, you know Gen Con? It's the big D&D slash gaming convention. Uh, I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, uh, Gen Con 89. I, I was the Tetris champion, uh, Gen Con 89. Oh, man, if you uh, got that, that sounds like a, a really cool T-shirt. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, all I got was this uh, crummy T-shirt, but yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. Was that just like best best score? Well, actually, the funny thing is, is, you know, it, it becomes this war of attrition because uh, and the only reason the only reason I did as well as I did is because they just happened to run the game on Macs. Ah. And I think the vast majority of players were playing on Nintendo at the time. And so or or arcade. And so I knew going in, there was a thing you could do with the Macs where it would buffer your moves and you could actually place pieces before they even appeared on the screen okay if so uh and and you know they the rules of the tournament where you got to have next piece showing so how knowing exactly the way the orientation they would come uh basically you know i'd see it at the next piece and i would hit the you know the right key four times and the rotation key twice in the space bar and they would just drop from the top like you'd never see the pieces they would just drop into place and so that being able to do that just because I knew the I knew the particular system that they were using was a huge leg up. And so it came down to me and one other guy. And I think I because we, it, it, we were going on for like 45 minutes and we were both on. Uh, I forget what it's called, the extreme mode or okay. you know, the high speed mode, level nine. And uh, they said, OK, um, so whoever gets the most point, it's points in the next five minutes wins. Uh, which was an interesting switch up because I don't think they realized it was going to go on that long. <laughs> like we've got another event coming yeah. up. We need to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we exactly, need to finish exactly. this up. This was in the early years of esports, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it just became this sort of which is actually very difficult to that because I'm very much a survival player. You know, just get rid of the lines. Yeah. I'm not a build up and get a Tetris player uh, by nature. So that it was a bit of a challenge. But uh, but yeah, I definitely had a, a huge unfair advantage because of the, the home court advantage of playing on Mac. <laughs> um, but what, what about in university? Was there like, did you get back into games? Did you like, you know, play games on your, your PC or your Mac or whatever you had at the time? Or was there like a community of gamers in, in university as well? That's often when people so, get drawn back in is when you have these people. Right. And again, I, I, you know, I started university in 1991 and I did have the benefit of being at a university. It was one of the first to have a, a LAN, a university wide LAN network yeah. connecting uh, all the dorms, which, you know, I mean, that's doesn't sound like anything now. But at the time, we were the only university in the in the U.S. that had this. And so uh, it was a big deal. And um, I got into uh well a lot of single player games like you know civ civ 2 was great um i remember spending forever on that twitch games like specter which is a, a kind of like a vectrix style uh uh battlefront no what what was that game called or battle zone or something yeah, yeah, yeah something like that. um i got so i did those kind of twitch games in civ 2 and then um so there were some great early mac net games that we got to run on you know via apple talk and, and various things like that it's, it's like steam technology now yeah. but 
I remember this one called Minotaur, which you can probably look it up online. It was a fantastic game. And uh, I'm actually really sorry. I mean, if it, if it was out now, I would probably still be playing it. Uh, the And that was a game. It was a head-to-head against another player where you're in a, in a labyrinth. And you're essentially trying to kill each other. And you have scrolls and items. I think there was armor and potions and stuff like that and traps. And the, the trick was that you only had one sort of use button. So what you would do is you would queue up the various equipment that you want to use and, and traps and potions and scrolls. And so you would be constantly sort of sorting your inventory to, to queue up the various things you want to use yeah. for that moment when you run into the other guy in the maze and you have to go for broke. And there were scrolls that would teleport him to you and other scrolls that would like trap him in a place. And so you'd have, you'd get these really complicated sort of scenarios in your mind before you meet, you know, like, okay, I'm going to teleport him to me and put down this kind of trap. And then this sort of thing, of course he would have those too. And so at some point somebody would teleport to the other person and then all hell would break loose. And that sounds amazing. it was all about, Oh, it was fantastic. It was really good. And, you know, it had that sort of Twitch thing, but it also had a, a lot of pre-planning and strategy. Yeah. So I, I think they just did a really good job with that. Uh, somebody please make that game again. And was, was that like a, a kind of a campus-wide tournament, or was it just like a select few that would play Marathon? Not it marathon, was just, just uh, a few of us. Yeah, right. Well, actually, we started playing Marathon uh, later. Uh, and that became, that, that became a, a thing where you would go down to the, uh, the computer center and um you know the the early bungee game yeah yeah we the, would the do very early uh, death match they're all all the kind of proto death yep. matches really exactly yeah yeah, yeah. so and, we, we started doing that as well and so with doing uh, the japanese and with, with the computer science as well like were you were you ever thinking like oh, i could i could work in video games that'd be something i could do never occurred to me that's crazy uh, i made i did start making games i I had very little focus on work, uh, which maybe is a product of the time. I know now when you're in university, at, at least in the States, it's very much about, you know, how will I get a job when I get out? Yeah. And I was very much just focused on, you know, I want to learn more Japanese. I want to play these great games. <laughs> never, <laughs> never my put the two together. That, that's what never even, yeah, never occurred to me that I might have to actually work and stuff. I, not that, you know, it wasn't like I came from a rich family or anything. I, I did yeah. have to work, uh, but uh, it didn't occur to me at the time. So That's probably better. You probably get more out of it just going for the, for the joy of learning. I, yeah, I think so. I, 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 I totally think so. I mean, I know that's not a, uh, it's not a luxury that, that people really have no. these days. It's certainly not how, how university is designed. And, and I've been to conferences where we've talked about this exact thing where it's so focused on, I actually went back to my old school and talked to the students there and we had a big conference talking about how can we make sure that, how can we protect the liberal arts side of the liberal arts education? Because everyone just wants to take economics or uh, pre-med, which is, you know, to become a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Which is obviously uh, a fine and noble thing, but 
And no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's just there's room for all of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, however, if if you have to get you know X amount of credits in order to finish your major, um, you're not going to do something crazy like take Japanese on the side. <laughs> and and you know when I was in school, Japan was big because it was the you know huge economy, and so uh, you had a lot of economics majors who would take Japanese. Um, and it would completely, you know, kick their butts because it's not an easy language, especially no. when you're you're starting in the first year, and it's especially difficult. And so that you know that was fine then, but these days there's really very little reason to learn Japanese. You know, when you're in that situation, you're faced with um, what am I going to do to get ahead? I mean, the Asian language you go to is Chinese these days. Yeah. So. Um, and the conference I was at was specifically for for Japan studies, and so they were really concerned about you know how are we going to get how are we going to get people into the classes? You know these are professors who are actually worried about their their livelihoods. Yeah, was <laughs> there know. was there any conclusions or just uh, actually a lot of positive stuff? Yeah, um, more effort to um, get just get kids over here. And not even just to Japan, but really get kids overseas, um, which the rate of students going overseas has dropped precipitously in the last uh, 10, 20 years. Um, actually, all over the world. Uh, yeah. not, it's not just the U.S. But, um, and a lot of that has to do with you have to get X number of credits to graduate with in, in your major, you know, and to get you know, whatever accreditation you need. And so... It's hard, you know. You don't want to spend. Uh, I, you know, I, I spent two of my four years in in undergraduate. I spent in Japan. Well, I, I want to get on to the talking about yep. your working games, but I'm going to do some relatively quick fire questions just to sort of break up the chat a bit. So, yep. um, Alex, what game are you best at? I think we've maybe already answered this with the Tetris question, but maybe not. And certainly not these days. I my Twitch ain't what it used to be. What um, game am I best at? Yeah, uh, if you have to, you know, play a game with death, save your your soul. <laughs> right, um, boy, I would probably do drumming on Rock Band if it came to that. Do you know? I would, I would probably do that as well. That's one of. I, I think I learned how to play drums from playing Rock Band. I, I totally did. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Uh, yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's one of the, the best video game experiences, um, and it's probably the thing I've played more than anything. Um, it's yeah. just, it's it's wonderful. You have to play with headphones though. Right, obviously. right. Uh well not when you live in Vermont. I, I was actually back there for five years, right around when Beatles Rock Band came out. Uh, okay. And I was a big Beatles fan as well. And so I, I was going hour, two hours a day on that easily. I only just... say play with headphones because you can then um you don't have to hear yourself hitting on plastic and it's it's a full immersion. Oh, it's the best. Uh, Changes okay. Because you can't hear the... the, the k right, It just, it just right, feels right. like you're playing the drums. It's it's incredible. I think if you turn the, the stereo loud enough, you, you also... <laughs> that is also an option. Yeah, that is also an option. Yes. Um, once they get that with uh, virtual reality, you know, that's it. That's, that's the end. Oh, no. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. That'd be so good. I am. Um, I don't have a kit here. Um, I had bought the Ion Rocker back in, in the States, and I don't have the setup here to play. And 
almost I think every other day I get one of these rock band urges, <laughs> specifically rock band drums. And so that's uh, yeah, one of these days I'm going to break down. I have too many hobbies, though. So anyway, <laughs> OK, um, if, if, if you're prone to such things, what was your worst rage quit? Uh, I don't think I am prone to rage quitting. I, I do do a very mean passive aggressive quit. Okay. Where, and usually, usually it's sort of online group games where we'll all be playing something and I'll decide that it's just not doing it for me anymore. And I'll just stop playing without telling anyone. <laughs> uh, the worst case is probably, uh, you know, that, you know, the game Carcassonne, the I do, yeah. board game, uh, there was an iPad version out and, it's it's not the best game really. I mean, there's a lot, just a lot of random elements to it. Um, but it was good for playing on your phone every once in a while. And it got to the point where I'd be playing that just for like an hour a day or something, just because you have to take your move. You know, it's it's asynchronous multiplayer, and so it it would always say, you know, it's your turn. You know, that sort of thing. I think it was British too, actually. And and I would always have my phone on, so I'd be out for a bike ride or something, and I'd just be out enjoying nature or whatever. And I, you know, it's your turn now, and I'm just like, oh god. And eventually, I just stopped playing, and you know, I would get a message a week later from the guy I was playing against. He's like, so I guess we're we're done that game. <laughs> like, oh yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, you don't want it to turn into a full time job. Uh no no, and these those things tend to. But... Um, what game has made you laugh? Oh, uh, many games, definitely multiplayer more so. I mean, cause it's really just other people making me laugh. But, um, uh, recently I would say, and recently being the, the last five years, portal two, yep. uh, played with my business partner and, and erstwhile gaming buddy as well. Uh, Joe reader, who's in my translation company. Um, we played that multiplayer and I just, I haven't laughed that hard. <laughs> just seeing the ways that you mistakenly killed your buddy uh, over and over again is, it's truly hilarious. And, and it was like, that was such an amazing game because there was a few, I remember a few um, specific ways of solving puzzles, especially in the two player where it felt like, that can't be right you know in that in that great way that portal right. does where you're like that oh, yeah. can't be how it works and then you do you're like oh my yeah. god that totally is and there was one of them where yeah. you have to aim portals so that you both shoot through together and then hit yep. each other in midair and then drop yes down. yes and yes, I was like, that's, yes that's so because it's so funny and it just seems so wrong yeah. but it's like perfect and it fits the the narrative really well oh it's, it's, it's yeah. just firing on all Brilliant. cylinders so good yeah you know portal one and portal two when i whenever i have somebody who doesn't play games visiting or doesn't play many games uh i always fire up portal and just give them the keyboard and and watch what happens yeah no, it's because amazing. especially those first sort of 10 15 minutes of the game where you're like oh wait is that oh my god you know that <laughs> that realization it's it's fantastic game portal and portal 2 both great and and portal 2 especially just the humor is is hilarious and even the i mean the writing is is so solid too yeah so, so well that that brings us nicely into the, the the next stage so at what point then did, did did the opportunity to start working on games come so you, you mentioned earlier you were doing subtitles for a hawaiian tv station a japanese tv station in hawaii yeah yeah so i'd done 
the subtitles. So that was my translation background. And, and then, of course, I'd spent my whole life making D&D worlds and stuff. So I had a lot of fantasy background. Yeah. And that actually made an LP mud in. I, I, does that even make sense? Do you know what an LP mud is? Uh, well, mud. I've, I've only discovered muds through talking to people on the show, actually. Uh, there's a few people right. who kind of spent, spent a lot of time playing muds. I don't know what LP mud is, though. Uh, it was just a variant of mud. It used a it used a variant of C called LPC, which is why why it was called LP mud. Um, and very much though that they, are, I mean, just to to make it yep. clear if people haven't listened, to it, they are essentially um, they're kind of like D and D, but over over the internet. So somebody creates a world, and people can go in and interact with it, right? Yeah, I would say the the closest antecedent is uh, Zork. Ah, okay, it's like multiplayer Zork, basically. Uh, yeah, and with the added the the sort of the social stuff and even more than you, you actually you rarely sort of played the game with other people it was more of chat room and then solo play yeah but where you did get into creative game design was where um on many muds you could become a wizard at you know at level 20 or whatever and they would give you your own room and you could actually write the code for your room and then if you became uh, an arch mage or arch wizard, uh, you could actually design more of the game. And so when I started getting into that, uh, that was huge. Uh, because that's like, ooh, you know, it's my love for Zork and my love for D&D. Yes, yeah, so it's a perfect marriage. Yeah, no, those are muds. I actually had a friend who... who got booted from university because he i taught him how to mud and then he he never stopped <laughs> <laughs> ruined so, his life watch out it, yeah totally ruined his life well he became a very well-paid uh sysop so you know whatever but. say no to muds just say no to muds that's right <laughs> if only barbara bush had known uh, uh, so, so uh, what, how, how did the, it come about like was it square that you first worked for yeah so, well actually job? no that's not true um I went on an internship. Uh, so this is after my first year at grad school. I went on an internship to Sega. Oh, how exciting! In Japan. Oh yeah, I was totally excited. I mean, I, uh, I wonder that though because purely from the, like the conversation we've already had, you, you didn't seem to have a lot of you know. You weren't a big console gamer. They weren't big arcades. So did Sega uh-huh. mean a lot to you still? Uh. Probably nowhere near as much as it meant to to other people, <laughs> to other people you've interviewed on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, I did know of it. Um, God, what was my biggest Sega experience? That's actually a great question. I was probably only aware that it was a game company. And, you know, I knew I don't even know what their big games were. This is this is this is my dark, dark secret here <laughs> is that I knew completely nothing. I didn't play Final Fantasy until the interview. That's crazy. I know, I know. It's completely crazy. Uh, I'd certainly played everything that inspired Final Fantasy. So it was Sega. There is that. There's not a lot of, in in terms of sort of translations and things. There wouldn't have been an awful lot. That's right. And they're very. I mean, the arcade, you know, Space Harrier and Outrun and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And my my internship there was actually they didn't really know what to do with me. They just sort of agreed to do this internship through some foundation, and. So they had me translating the website pages for all of the games they had ever made, basically. It was the descriptions. Well, that's a good crash because, course in the history of Sega, then. 
And absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and I did get to do my first localization there. Um, it wasn't my project. It was there was uh, another guy there that was working on um, Last Bronx. Oh, that was an excellent uh, was yeah. Dreamcast fighting game. Exactly. Yeah, and he was working on the English version of that, and. I remember having some brainstorming sessions. Our, uh, what's your, what, what is your podcast rated? I should ask before you I can swear if you like, and you can, you can, oh, you right. can be explicit, well, go for it. Anyway, it's, and it's not that explicit because the entire goal of this project, the, the little side project that we dreamed up was, um, to try to get things past the censors. Okay. Because there were very, very strict censorship on the, on the publishing side. And uh, if actually somebody's played Last Bronx and and sees this, I, I'm not even sure whether it got through into the the final version. But we did a lot, uh, our best work, I think, with the ability names. Um, okay. There was one move where one of the characters who's wearing a short skirt uh, jumps up and sort of latches her thighs around the the face. Okay. Of of her opponent, um, and we called that the cutie pie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which on paper, if you're, if you're, you know, the censor working late in the office and you see that on paper, it doesn't look offensive at all. It's only when you actually see the move and you hear it's the cutie <laughs> pie then that it really hits you. So there were those, uh, those moments. Um, yeah, that's, that was my starting localization. Also the, um, this kind of low jab punch attack that we called the Tokyo handshake, which that, that's not explicit, but I thought that was a good, <laughs> that's good flavor. It is good flavor. I, 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 like, but what were they called in in Japanese? Like, are we, were we just given free reign to just change whatever you want? Yeah, we were given free reign. They didn't, especially in those days, and even even to a certain extent, you know, much later, the Japanese companies had no idea what they were doing. You know, as is evidenced by all of the really terrible translations. Uh, all of your uh, base all belong to us. Oh sure, sure. I mean that's just that's just a, an obvious example, and you know, and 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 God bless it. I'm glad it's still. <laughs> I'm glad it happened uh, because it would be a different world without that stuff. But um, I do kind of miss that a little bit, though. Like there, there was always that always meant it, as much as it was a bit silly from time to time. It also sure. lent it a kind of air of otherness and like exciting. Like, Absolutely, this, there's something Absolutely. kind of not quite right about this, and it's it's quite yeah, exciting. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's perfect now. Uh, sure. Well, or or even worse, um, if it's accurate but mediocre. Yes. Okay. Which I think is something you also get. <laughs> uh, not to cast aspersions on other people in my industry, but but there's definitely, you know, I, I think games that are sort of adequately translated are are a dime a dozen. Yeah. And that to me is more depressing. I would much rather have all your base or belong to us, or even you know some of the early Final Fantasy translations, which aren't—they aren't sort of grammatically wrong in the way that all your base or belong to us is, but they are very quirky. Yeah. Just because of the way that the localization happened, and you know, so you get you know the Spoonie Bard and, and that kind of stuff, and and that can't really happen now. Uh, which is too bad, and and of course we're we're always saying you know we want to we want to work on a game where we can do a bad localization on purpose. Like there's got to be a game project that's 
that would be amenable to doing a really <laughs> terrible, just off the wall translation because that would be so hilarious for you know for us basically that must but exist like I, it that, must, that exist, must exist yeah we got clay there was one game that unfortunately never they didn't decide not to make the english port because the japanese game didn't sell very well um hanjuku hero okay uh half boiled hero i guess or soft boiled hero um would be the english translation um I think i specifically hanjuku hero 2 uh i worked on the japanese version and we were in talks about doing an English version, uh, but it got canned, I think, just because of sales. Uh, but that would have been the perfect game. In fact, we, we had already wor- started working on scripts of bad translation, <laughs> uh, especially voiceover, because there's just so much humor potential there. If, you know, you have people, you know, what if, what if all your base were belonged to us was voiced? I mean, that's... Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, and that's another another goal of mine is to get onto um, audioatrocities.com. Yes, <laughs> are you familiar with that? Yeah, am, boy, yeah. that would be that would be a real feather in my cap if I could get <laughs> either. I mean, of course, getting like your own voice on there would be would be the best. But but I would love to get a line of mine on audioatrocities.com someday. So so how did this all start then? So you you had this internship at Sega. So was it just like a natural progression? Then it's like, well, he's had right. some experience. Uh, so I had that that uh, Sega experience, um, and I had been trying to actually get into games from a very different angle. Um, I had done some cold calling uh, and preliminary talking with people at Wizards of the Coast. Okay. Uh, because I was a big Magic player, um, I was I was in the tournament scene and everything. This has been ninety five, ninety six, and uh, I wasn't particularly good. I, I was I was living in Hawaii at some time, and I think my my highest height was like second in the Hawaii state or something, which is, which is pretty, pretty low on the totem pole. But, um, I was really into magic and, and I thought, gee, you know, this would be great in Japan. They should totally sell this over here. And, uh, and indeed they, they did. And indeed it's, it's doing extremely well now, but, um, and I did get to work in magic, you know, a decade later, but I had been trying to get into that. So I did have that idea of, of, yeah, I could work in, in games, um, especially something so s- rich with story, yeah, like yeah, absolutely. Magic. And I had much more experience with that than, um, and it was much more of a direct descendant from D and D too. So that felt closer to me than than Japanese RPGs, which I didn't have, you know, much. I think Zelda was as close as I'd ever gotten to that world um, until I was in grad school. Now, so this is second year in grad school, and I was in a PhD program, which could have gone on there were some guys there who had been there for like 15 years and didn't have their phd yet um it was very easy to spin your wheels and so after about two years of that i started looking at other options because i realized i didn't i felt like partially didn't have what it took to to make it all the way and i also realized i would totally be you know that guy who was there for 15 years yeah uh, yeah, and and never never did anything basically, and so I was looking at other options, and um, my my girlfriend at the time actually went down to the college uh, database. They had one of those uh, databases of of jobs. This is again showing my age, but you know that didn't have a whole lot of that stuff around in those days. Still, the internet was still quite fresh, and uh, or the World Wide Web at least, and. Um, 
they had a job database. And so, um, you know, she looked at it and she said, oh, hey, there's this uh, place in California that's looking for translators for games. And that was Squaresoft. Oh, crazy. And so I, I applied, uh, sort of cold called or answered that, answered that job opening. And um, they, uh, they flew me out and I did uh, an interview with, um, with uh, God, it was like five or, five or six different people in, at different times. Like there was a group interview and then there was a few and I actually talked to the, the president of, of Squaresoft USA came in and uh and did this really sort of intense he was pretty sure that i was just some dude that had a japanese girlfriend <laughs> and like games and so i think actually that was one point when it was very helpful for me to not be i mean i knew games but i wasn't like uh, a big fanboy yeah and so i had others i'd been doing very much other stuff and when he's like oh, okay so and he, and he was the only one that actually interviewed me in Japanese, too, which is uh, funny. You know, he came in just like no, no introduction whatsoever. He's like, okay, so you've got a Japanese girlfriend and um, you can read some kanji and you, you, know, you think you can translate games. Basically told me, like, well, no, actually, I'm you know, studying classical Japanese literature and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I had something else to, to kind of counter that with. Uh, I don't know how, how important that was, but... Anyway, uh, they offered me the job for considerably less than I was making doing essentially nothing at grad school <laughs> at a scholarship. That's and a tough so, choice. Yeah, although I knew that it really wasn't. Um, it, the only the decision to make there was, and again, you know, I, I, sort of my obliviousness to the real, you know, the the real world was continuing on strong, and so. I was like, eh, you know, you know, I'll be, I'll be basically paying them to hire me, but, uh, but that's okay. It'll all work out. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so no, I, so I took the job and, um, I was at Squaresoft for, I think like three months, maybe four months, uh, at the U S office. And then on in January of 1999, I moved to, uh, the Tokyo office. And you've been kind of in Japan ever since? Uh, pretty much. I, there was a five-year stint where I went back home. Um, but I kept translating through and, that uh, time. Very excitingly, you, you worked on the, the best Final Fantasy game. Um, certainly my favorite, Final Fantasy XII. That was, was that oh, your right. like, first big job, essentially? No, no. Um, I think my first, well, that was the, oh, that was my first big job was FF10. Yeah. I was actually, I'd actually quit Square by the time I, I worked on Final Fantasy XII. Oh, so you did that kind of freelancing? Uh, yeah, yeah. I had, so it was at Square from 98 to 2002. And by, by the time I quit, I, I mean, Matsuno had already sort of tapped me for FF12. And this is back, obviously, when Matsuno was still on FF12. And, and I remember I'd been talking about going back to the States. Uh, my parents run a little, a, a little lodge in the country. It's countryside in the, yeah. in the northeast of Vermont. And so um, I had been talking about going back to kind of help them transition into something else. Um, and so I was like, oh, God, I'm just going to want to do this, this one last job. <laughs> uh, you know, this one last bank heist. Um, <laughs> 
uh, FF12 and yeah, we're going to start right now and I'll be done in like a year and then maybe I'll be home in 2003 or 2004. So, you know, of course I didn't get home until 2007 <laughs> um, because of the delay with FF12. I think we were five years in production, something like that. It set some record at the time. Uh, my first big game for Square was FF10. And so how was that then? Because you hadn't, obviously you said you didn't grow up with these games. So did you kind of have to go back and play them or like, like how did you kind of prepare for that? Uh, well, you know, at that time I had, I had played much of FF7, FF8 and bits of the earlier FFs just as, you know, being at, at the company. Um, I had worked a little bit on FF8 too, just a tiny little bit because that's what they were doing when I arrived in California. Yeah. Uh, and then I got my feet wet with, um, Vagrant Story and Parasite Eve 2, which I basically soloed both of those games. I, well, I had, uh, there was one other translator on Vagrant Story who, who did a lot of the menu stuff. Um, and Parasite Eve 2, though, was more or less a solo job. And so I like- got... Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm fascinated by the by the, the the process of of translating a game. So like, where do you even begin? Because it, I mean, it's it, I'm it's not going to just be pure one for one translation because that that doesn't work. Sure. So how do you how do you approach it? Like how was how your experience of kind of learning how to do such a like large scale projects as well? I guess it starts with playing the game and. Uh, I really feel like each game sets its own bar in terms of, you know, this is the kind of, this is the level of language we're going to use and this is the mood we need to create. And so you start by playing the game and you, you get the feel of it and you try to understand, of course, this is back in the days when they weren't trying to pump the games out simultaneously. Yeah. You know, the, the U.S. release would be delayed by as much as a year sometimes. So often we'd have the whole game to play or, or much of the game yeah. uh, to play when you start. So um, you have the benefit of, of hindsight, really. You can see how the story went, you know, where it succeeds, where it fails. And coming, you know, very much straight from a literature background, I just approached everything as... Um, Kind of in the spirit of a movie adaptation, as if the original game in Japanese were the book, and I had to then write the movie. Okay. Which, there's a lot of similarities in, in adaptation. I mean, obviously not structurally, it's, it's not the same, but, but the attitude that you have to take, it's sort of like, um, okay, well, this is working really well in this context. How do I make it work in, in this new context, uh, where the new context is the English language? Yeah. Because it's this and, question of tone as well. Like it'll have a certain tone yeah. that you can't, you have to you have to change to to replicate. Basically, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's that's very much that's very true. Uh, I, I think you know translation sort of has these two things going. Where <clears throat> on one hand, you you want to be accurate in the sense of you want to convey the spirit of the original uh, as closely as possible. Yeah, and you want to duplicate the experience of playing the original. And if you want to get really, you know, technical about it, I, I want the American gamer to be able to have the same experience that the Japanese gamer has. 
And that means, so from right, right from the start, you don't want to, you don't want to mess it up. <laughs> uh, you, you don't want all your bases are, are belong to us because that by definition is creating a different experience. Yeah. And however, you also can't directly translate the Japanese because if there's a, just to use a really easy example, if there is a, um, a joke about a pickled plum that would make a Japanese user go, ha ha ha, you know, and, and chuckle. Um, it's totally not going to fly in, in English because you know, what's a pickled plum. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It, it has a certain cultural context in Japanese. And so, you know, you can say, well, you know, if you're going to be truly original, you have to keep pickled, you have to keep umeboshi has to be pickled plum. Um, but to have, uh, a good entertainment, translation you have to create the same effect that the pickled plum joke created in japanese so i taking it from that you know i, I really just approached it at, like a like an adaptation project uh to see <clears throat> oh and of course since i was still kind of a, a lit nerd at the time i would look for things like oh you know are there are there motifs you know late motifs that kind of thing you know yeah. in the text you know, analyze the text to that kind of approach, which probably, uh, you know, for better or for worse, had, had never been done in game translation at that point. Because um, it's just coming from a very, very different background, I think, from most of my contemporaries. Yeah, so, I mean, um, was, it, was, it ex was this expected of you? Like, was this what you were hired for, or was it just, you know, just translate it? Not to, yeah, I mean, just, just make... I, Translation then and, and to a large extent now was like the little black box uh, and the Japanese companies. Um, it's much better these days, but you know, certainly back in the, in the day, they had no way of knowing what the quality of the output was. Uh, and so they literally would just say, you know, here is game, make English go, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and... And they had no idea what went on in the black box, uh, nor really any way of judging the the quality of the. Um, of course, yeah, you would, yeah. yeah. And so you know, which is why it's, it was Wild West, uh, and you know, continues to this day to kind of be the Wild West. Especially, I think this day, what what uh, these days, what mostly affects that is budget. Yeah. Um, and, and just sort of attitude of the developer. You know, if they really value story and they understand story, then they're going to spend the time and the money to get a decent localization. And if, and if it's an action game and they don't care, then they'll, you know, they'll just go with the lowest common denominator or the, the lowest bidder, which is fine, you know, honestly, for those games. So I'm interested, actually. That you would probably be uniquely placed to, to know this, but you know, we joke about stuff like all your base, and there's a lot of kind of... Uh, people have fond memories of, of badly translated video games growing up, but the mm -hmm. the converse is probably true. Like you know, Japan would have received, you know, Western games. Uh, w w are there any equivalent kind of like bad translations from the other side that they would joke sure. about? Like, yeah, uh, no, sure. Um, and there's a lot of uh, <clears throat> there's the the sort of mode of um, well, for one thing, actually there's a lot fewer Western games in Japan than there are Japanese games in the West. 
Okay. Um, that's obviously changing these days with things like Steam, although not much. Um, PC gaming is still a non-event here. It's a very small subset of the gaming population. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, you know, the strength of the, the Western games really is PC gaming. And so, <clears throat> uh, well, there's no, no rock band here. You know, for goodness sakes. So that's, uh, there's a very different playing field. Um, but the games that have come through, um, definitely there's that whole <clears throat> translation ease problem. So you, you just, people will talk differently uh, when they've been translated from English. They use a lot of pronouns, which you don't use in Japanese typically. Okay. And so you hear people making fun of, of that sort of, you know, the translation ease, I guess. Um, but it's much less of a thing than there's no equivalent to all your base or belong to us because there's just so many fewer, you know, a game of that stature would never make it to Japan. Yeah. And I, I, I think a lot of like, maybe I'm just remembering, misremembering, but like oh. growing up, I, they, they weren't as much, there wasn't as much kind of story and kind of, you know, epic uh, presentation sure. for simple games as they were. The Japanese games were always the best at that. That was what made them yeah, no, so exciting. They uh, they completely you know trailblazed that genre. I just said uh, the. Mm-hmm. No, no, carry on. Uh, you no, know, I just. I mean, you had Wizardry and Bard's Tale, and um, to a lesser extent, Ultima in the in the state. Well, not not lesser extent, just different kind of game. So you did have those story games, uh, but they were primarily PC or, or, you know, Apple. And uh, there just wasn't a market for that over here. Yeah, I mean, all the RPGs I played growing up were all all Japanese. They're all like Zelda and yeah. Final Fantasy and stuff. That, that was the, yeah. the, the only people that were making them, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So how... And, how, and how, even... Sorry, uh, just I was going to say, even to today, Japanese gamers largely play Japanese games. Yeah, I, I, the the reason I mentioned the, the the English thing is I remember playing a couple of years ago. Um, it was one of the Shinji Mikami's games. He kind of he went off and made a couple of like weird little games like Lost in the Damned and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and Lollipop Chainsaw in particular because Lollipop Chainsaw was written by <laughs> right. James Gunn, who then has gone on to do yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff. But he was specifically right, right. chosen for that, so that, I, I found that uh-huh. quite interesting. I, I don't know if that's quite rare to have like. A kind of Western writer to come in and write the game, and then to be translated afterwards, because they, they they, they care these, a lot about his voice, I guess, because he was like an old trauma guy, I think. Right, right, right. Uh, no, there's definitely uh, that's a thing now. I mean, that's a 2000 and onward thing. But um, I've worked on games where we've had Hollywood writers in the room, uh, and people who worked on things like. Uh, was that Lone Star Runner? Wait, was that, sorry, I'm going to use that the... We're uh, forgetting these... Homestar web... Runner. Homestar Runner, thank you. Jeez. Uh, yeah, that, I think... No, you know what? I'm sorry, I'm misremembering. It was... Um, I was really into Homestar Runner at the time, but it was not them. It was the guys who did those... They were like Rocky and Bullwinkle-style animated shorts, but they would always end up with everyone decapitated and... Bleeding everywhere, do you? I can't think that of what that is, no. Okay, it, I, my deepest apologies to the creators of that wonderful show, but um, the, uh, 
I'll avoid the temptation to try to Google it. Uh, the writers on that also wrote for some of the games that I was involved on as well. So it definitely, that became a thing uh, from around, oh, probably actually 2010 on is when that started. So uh, I, I purely, this is purely selfish reasons because I love the game so much. I want to hear about Final Fantasy twelve and yeah. how, what that was like to, to work on. Um, I mean, because uh, I'll, I'll say that yeah. the reason I love it so much is that the story is is excellent, and it, it is kind of it does feel like a, a version of of Star Wars. Um, mm-hmm. the, the main reason I love it is because I love the system, I love the Gambit system. I think it's, I think mm-hmm. it's a, a, a genius piece of game design that very few people have uh, used since, um, which is a shame. I, I wish they'd stuck with it. But but how was how was working on that for you? I was fantastic. Uh, definitely a highlight, if not the highlight of my career. Uh, I hope, I only hope that I will, it was sort of like my Olympics, <laughs> you know, you, you go to the Olympics once and then the rest of your hill, rest of your life is downhill. Uh, it was so, definitely just because it was point. such a grand, um, a grand project. It was, uh, I think just every, the, the team was really tight um, the game really appealed to me personally. The range, um, I was, uh, essentially a producer on the English version. Okay. And so we had incredible range to make calls on things like actors and the voices and all that stuff. Oh, the amazing. Japan, the Japan dev team had veto power. Um, so we would basically just make all of our decisions and then show it to them and then they would let us know if they had problems with anything and they never did. Um, actually, the only thing that raised an eyebrow and this raised eyebrows uh, from gamers too who were familiar with the Japanese version was the casting of um, the Viera as, uh, with Icelandic accents. <laughs> Why was that um, Just issue? because it was, it was just so different from the Japanese uh, that it was the only, you know, all the other stuff we did was very much under the radar from the Japanese perspective because uh, you know we sort of like snuck uh, like poetic structure into the lines of the Okuria which are the gods in in the game and they you know that's whatever they don't care Uh, (laughs) they don't understand that and it doesn't matter at all and it really doesn't even you have to be paying attention to kind of even notice it in English and so that kind of change is just completely under the radar. But when you take um, the the bunny women, the Viera, um, have very husky, sort of sultry voices in Japanese. And we pitched those up considerably with the Icelandic take. Um, and so that, that sort of set off that, that raised some flags. It's like, why is this change being made? That sort of thing. So we actually had to not go to the mat, but we had to explain ourselves. That's crazy because that, like, I can't imagine that any other way. It just seems to fit like perfectly. Uh, that's, that's great. <laughs> I'm glad you, I'm glad you think so. But it does uh, just everything like the, the whole demeanor, the, the, the character design, it all, it all mm-hmm. works like that. I can't imagine that as like some husky kind of uh, femme fatale almost right no which is what they all are in, in japanese uh it um and that works fine in japanese and that's the and that's the thing i said earlier 
how each game kind of sets its own bar and sets its own in range range in terms of language and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, um, the reason why it's the game setting that and not the original language. I mean, you would think like, okay, well, let's. How did they write this in Japanese? What's the range that they use? You know, were they using archaic Japanese? Were they using lots of modern words? You know, that sort of thing. It's that's far less important than just the feel of the game. Uh, the world that the game is creating because you have to approach these big localization projects, especially when you have voices involved from a world design perspective, because the Japanese game, if you think about what the Japanese game is giving you, they're giving you uh, a completely realized world with all this backstory. And then they're giving you the Japanese language to explain that world and to make the characters speak and come alive. And the, the world that they've given you is great. I mean, there's the, you can totally use 100% of that, and you should. But the language does not do as much for you because Japanese um, is, just by nature and by historical fact, is a much narrower language than English. And what I mean by that is English is spoken all over the world, and it's spoken by many different people and with many different accents, as anyone listening to this podcast will, Absolutely. will should know. And so the, the world that you, um, when you try to represent a world with English, you have to take a very different stance um, than you would with Japanese. Because Japanese really has a very limited range of accents that they can use. Um, Japanese, as it is spoken uh, in the Japanese islands. Basically, there are two main dialects, and then there's uh, you know thousands of, of minor, smaller dialects. But you can only really use the two main ones, or people are going to think you, you've gone crazy um, because it's hard to understand some of the the smaller dialects, and they're so parochial. It would be I don't know what a you know a good cognate in in English would be, but maybe if you take some really really specific regional British accent, yeah, and you said, okay, everybody in this country is going to speak like they're from Aberystwyth, Wales. <laughs> that's um, a good call. That's very close to where I grew up. That's that's, that's oh like no kidding. Okay, yeah. I was getting that vibe. Do you speak Welsh? I, I speak very, very little Welsh. We kind of had to oh, do it in school, okay. and because it was mandatory, nobody liked it. Um, but I speak it. a little, yeah. Right. Uh, is that I don't speak that much. Understandable. All right. <laughs> I think that was, do you speak Welsh or something like that? Um, the, uh, I'm amazed that you I had speak a Welsh. I don't, uh, but I had a friend who was there. In fact, a, a fantastic gaming experience in Wales, uh, in Aberystwyth, I... Um, this was is coming where I expected Japan. this conversation to go, but please I know. Continue. I'm sorry. I, I'll try to. I'll try to go back. No, no, um, no, no. It's good. But it was. It was a great sort of gaming moment. Um, this is 1995. I was coming back from my year abroad in. Oh no, it must have been 94. And I was coming back from my year abroad in in Japan, and I had been playing Magic, Magic okay. the Gathering, the card game, um, using just like one deck of cards that my dad had sent me from one of the early versions of the game uh and he'd sent it to me because he saw an article that was saying everyone at microsoft is playing a card game and he thought that was hilarious that <laughs> computer nerds were playing something physical and um 
so I'd been playing for like half a year with just one deck of cards, which is amazing now to think of it. Cause there was no, you can buy anything in Japan, of course. And, uh, and I went back, uh, and my friend who I'd grown up playing D and D with a really good Eli Alexander. And this is a guy who's now, he just recently did a Kickstarter making dungeon terrain and he's working with the, um, Dwarven Forge, uh, dungeon terrain creators. Okay. So they make, uh, yeah, the models for playing D and D with. Um, he, he now does sculpting for them as well. Um, and he, he works on magic cards, um, which is a gig I kind of set him up with. And he's actually also edited a lot of my novels and stuff. And I've even gotten to work on a game or two over, over the years, but, um, uh, no, yeah, fantastic. Um, and we grew up playing with, we went basically straight from star Wars toys to D and D and TMNT and, and his homebrewed games. And, um, I met him for the first time in years because he had been in college and we'd both been away in college and I'd been in Japan and I actually flew back th- via Europe. So uh, my mother's from the Netherlands originally and so okay. I'd, I'd spent a month in Amsterdam playing The Dark had just come out. I don't know if you ever played Magic, but this I is played one, Magic, this, no, but... one of those early sets was called The Dark and, and that was the first one I was able to buy in a store because I'd never been to a place where they sold Magic cards at that point. And... Um, so I got a bunch of new cars and I was really excited about it. And, and I flew to England and I was traveling around there and, um, I went, Eli was in Aberystwyth learning Welsh for a year. Why on earth was he doing that? Uh, I, my own pet, uh, theory about this is that, uh, cause it's what Tolkien did. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and he was, this is the guy that was doing Elvish and, and stuff, uh, and making his own languages, uh, from, from a very early age. And uh, he had gotten into Welsh poetry, uh, classic Welsh poetry and Mavignogian and, and, and all that sort of stuff um, in college. And uh, he does a fantastic, he did a translation of uh, the Jabberwocky, Lewis Carroll's uh, The Jabberwocky into Welsh. And he does a fantastic performance of that. So if you ever meet Eli one of these days or you ever want to uh, I would love interview to a very that. different of, of gamer uh, you'll have to get him to do his welsh jabberwocky because it's truly out of this world but <laughs> that's a hell of a anyway, party sorry, just, yes and these oh, oh and it comes out at, at most parties too <laughs> you, unsurprisingly um and uh anyway he was in wales studying welsh and i went there um i think i hitchhiked to Aberystwyth, Aberystwyth because there was a train strike and so I ended up getting there several days later than I'd planned on and I had to leave the next morning so we went out for a hike and we went pubbing and then we got back to the place he was staying which was this really funky house with like three other guys actually men they were older than us and they um <laughs> they were Welsh language activists Okay. So they would do, they would do sit-ins at the mayor's house and stuff like that, uh, protesting for more Welsh education and, and that sort of thing. Which is probably like the only house in Wales where you could have an immersive Welsh experience, really. That's um, crazy. You know, nobody spoke English just by rule. Uh, and anyway, I I spent the night there, and you know, after we'd gone to a few pubs and seen some great music and drank some great beer, um, we came back, and um, I was like, yeah, so Eli. Uh, I picked up this game in Japan. My dad sent it to me and he's like, Oh magic <laughs> because you know, this is the days before easy email too. Right. And so 
we didn't know that, you know, we hadn't seen each other in a couple of years. This is, you know, old gaming buddies. Yeah. And, you know, he brings out his big box of magic cards. And of course, this is also pre magic on the internet, pre pre World Wide Web. So, um, I'd never seen any of these cards that he had and he had never seen any of the cards that I had. And so we, I think we literally, I had to, my train was the next morning at like nine and we just played straight from like 11 PM to, you know, eight the next morning when I scarfed down a posture or whatever. And, and, uh, that's amazing. That, that, that's a, that's a, a formative friendship story that night. We, we got drunk in Aberystwyth and played magic all night. Yeah, yeah, and of course it's you know there were many repeats of that night and and you know the years since, but um, but I just remember that as just being a fantastic sort of every card is a new experience and you know it was a great gaming experience and it was also great sort of rebonding with this you know friend I had grown up with gaming and you know here was this new game that we both happened to be playing and we both happened to have our cards with us and so that's uh, amazing. Went. Sorry, that was a big. Uh, no, no, it's a wonderful version. Uh, we're it. back on. We were talking about world. Uh, we were talking about Final Fantasy twelve and creating a world yeah. of English. And so the Japanese is giving you essentially standard Japanese. They can't go too archaic without sounding really wacky, and that's because um, English is by nature a historic language, historical language. Yeah. Um, we tend to preserve historical forms uh, far beyond their useful lifetime uh, to evoke uh, a certain mode. And a really great example of this is the King James Bible. Yeah. Um, the language used in that wasn't being spoken anymore. It was purposely archaic uh, when it was written. And so to evoke this sort of, you know, these, this is wisdom from the ancients kind of feel. And uh, English rejoices in that kind of thing. And, and in fact, English is really at its best and firing on all cylinders when it combines that sort of the modern, you know, Twitter speak with the or with with its full range of archaisms. And, you know, and that's that's English sort of at its best, I think. And so when you approach the task of creating a world in English, it is a horrible mistake to say, well, the Japanese was standard Japanese throughout. Thus, we will pick a standard English out of a, out of a hat uh, and um, go with that. Uh, would be a horrible error, I think. Okay. Uh, because it's not doing justice to the world. Um, when you create a, a fully realized world with voiced characters in Japanese, sure, you're going to use standard Japanese for most of that because it's going to sound weird if they all talk like they're from Aberystwyth. Say, not to harsh on Aberystwyth, but um, the, it's, it's a bit akin to, um, when I, you know, grew up watching, uh, Dr. Who on, uh, BBC America would do, uh, PBS in, in America would show yeah. Dr. Who. So I, I grew up watching Tom Baker, uh, as the doctor. And I clearly remember some aliens, you know, some slime alien speaking with a British accent, which to me, you know, as a, as a teenager in, in America, it was hilarious. <laughs> um, and obviously, you know, I, I've watched the new Doctor Who, and they don't do that anymore because we have different expectations about our fantasy these days and our, and our science fiction. But um, it would be akin to doing that if you just broke out with, you know, okay, everybody's going to speak, um, 
you know, Eastern seaboard American standard American. Yeah, you want dialect. to allow for the kind of like diversity of, of language and expression. Sure. And especially, you know, and, and when it's handed to you on a silver platter, like with Final Fantasy XII, which this is another way that the game sort of sets its own bar, you know, like, okay, the Star Wars references are obvious. You have the Empire, you have the Rebellion. Um, it isn't our job to sort of reinvent the wheel. So we went with British Empire and American Rebellion. Um, and we, you know, the only nuance, we added our own nuance to that. We said, well, it's not going to be modern American. It'll be sort of circa 1930s, 1940s America. And um, we set a lot of, uh, we were calling them touchstones. Maybe there's a more specific term, term you can use, but we would have um, characters in mind okay. for all of our major language groups. And we like actually archetypes would, you know, or like specific archetypes. Yeah, people. yeah, yeah. Um, like uh, Leo DiCaprio in Titanic okay. was our archetype for um, the Rabinaster crew in Final Fantasy XII. Anybody from the English, you know, the American speaking world of Final Fantasy XII, um, we would run their lines through, you know, Leo. <laughs> uh, we would have him say them in our, in, our, in our heads. And if it sounded wrong for his dialect in the Titanic, we would say, no, that's not going to work. That's and so that, yeah, that was sort of our guidepost, basically. And and then uh, similarly for a lot of the Empire, we would use, um, we used a lot of Lord of the Rings characters, you know, Aragorn and that sort of thing. And although we found that as we went into it, actually, Lord of the Rings goes way more archaic than than we went, even on Final Fantasy XII, with one or two exceptions. Um, so we did kind of pull that back a little bit, but. The, you know, we had one character that we um, went kind of Shakespeare with. He was one of the judges. Um, not comparing our writing to Shakespeare in any way, shape, or form, <laughs> but, we, but we let our, we let the, um, the range of the language kind of dip into some of that stuff. Um, and, yeah, as I mentioned, the Akurians, uh, we used um, not pentameter but it was an iambic meter of some kind maybe iambic quadrameter i've forgotten now we were very specific about it at the time with a really weird rhyme scheme um so it wouldn't hit you in the face but there is a rhyme scheme in all of the Akurian lines and the reason we did that not just um it wasn't just sort of you know language nerd masturbation it was um because in the japanese version they had gotten the otherworldliness of the Akuria across by putting this incredible filter on the, on the voice. Okay. Um, I, I think what they were doing was they were t recording the voice and then they were um, duplicating it and then pitching the different uh, duplications, uh, the copies, uh, you know, lower and higher, and then playing them all back at the same time. Okay. And so you had this like really wacky sounding, you know, very, very alien sound. Um, and you couldn't understand what they were saying. <laughs> Most of the time, because uh, the center channel in Japanese mixes, and this is still a problem today, the center channel is often too low. And so the, the music will, unless you're on a very specifically tuned system, the music kind of drowns out a lot of the dialogue. And the way that they get around this or, you know, the way that this isn't a problem is because subtitles are on by default in Japanese. So you have Japanese subtitles to the game 
constantly, you know, popping up on the screen telling you what everyone's saying. And normally not such a big deal, but when you get to the Acuria, you actually needed the subtitles to even tell what they were saying sometimes because just the sound effects and the wind and whatever, um, you couldn't hear them. Uh, we decided to keep the subtitles off by default in the English version, which yeah. is more standard in the US. Uh, and we don't like subtitles anyway because, you know, who wants that getting in the way of the great, the awesome visuals? So we had subtitles off, which meant when we came to the Acuria, we can't, couldn't use the same processing that the Japanese used. Otherwise, you just wouldn't be able to understand them. So we wanted a different way to make them sound alien. And we experimented with some, you know, weird speech things. You know, I, we probably even translated one or two lines in Pig Latin before we laughed and, and threw that out. <laughs> um, but, you know, we did kind of experiment with a lot of different stuff there. And what's and, the, the process uh, of doing it, though? Like, are you are you literally rewriting a, a, a script, or are you like doing yes. it directly into the game? Or oh no, no, no. it's it's uh, it's it's Excel. It's an Excel sheet. Okay, okay. Use Excel sheets, and the reason for that is, is very simple. Excel lets you put the original script in a column to the right, and then you have your English script on the left, and you, you can always see where you are. That makes it. You know, the old way of doing it was a, in a text file that would be fed into a compiler and you would you would have the Japanese and you'd comment it out and then write the English in below that. That sounds quite tricky, though. I mean, I mean, it sounds obviously like that, that that's useful, but like to have if you're just translating line by line, you would lose yep. the context and the, the nuance of it. Or would, would they be kind of like compartmentalized? Uh, well, no, you can see the whole script on the on the right. So you can see the Japanese Excel spreadsheet. Oh yeah, well you know the um, every time they come out with wider monitors, I I get I get one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because yes, we do Excel sheets big in in these parts. Uh, They tend to be very very horizontally long, and you learn all kinds of Excel tricks for getting the uh, the information needed to see on the screen. But you can also you know you could just copy the Japanese over into the left column temporarily yeah. and, and you know right over it if you wanted to there, there's any number of ways you can also um it's really easy to go to a script uh format from excel uh we have our own little tricked out excel sheet with um my partner joe is very good at excel uh visual basic and so he he made a custom script that would essentially pump out any any kind of character scripts we needed for actors uh, for Final Fantasy XII. Compared to Final Fantasy X, also done in Excel, but all of the character-specific scripts were compiled by hand. Uh, not by me, thankfully. Yeah, no, it, completely intense, very error-prone, um, and and just took days and days and days of time. So, because these are very large scripts. Uh, you no, know, none of that these days. Uh, so has has so, the, has the has your work on this kind of changed your relationship with RPGs? Like, do you do you do you play them? Do you love them, or is it still like too close <laughs> to be in your job? No, it's too close to be my job. In fact, it's even retroactively ruined the RPGs that I used to love as a kid. I um, <laughs> I put in. A, I got a Game Boy. A game. I don't. A game Boy Advanced or no? What was it? Actually, no. I'm sorry. It was the, it was a DS. Okay. I got a DS to 
either play a game of some kind or do one of the, they had like a con, this is sort of pre iPhone. They had a good kanji quiz thing on it that I thought was fun. And so I'd gotten this DS to do that. And, and I, you know what? I, I had a DS for a long time because I was working on the Phoenix Wright games. Mm. And then they took my DS away <laughs> because uh, when I stopped working on the game, I had to return it. It, was, it belonged to, the, to Capcom. And so I, uh, and I had bought a few games to play on the DS at that point. And so I, had, I, I bought a new DS. And when I bought it, it came with, uh, I got it with this Zelda package. I bought it in the U.S., and it came with a Zelda version. And I was like, oh, cool. I haven't played Zelda in years. You know, I can't wait to play Zelda again. And I put it in. And the moment the first, like, scrolling text came up, I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it, this is work. Not only is it work, <laughs> it's the worst kind of work. Because now I'm looking at somebody else's. I bought the English version. Now I'm looking at somebody else's translation, which is the most miserable thing to do. Unless it's. Uh, you know, I can't even look at my own translated stuff because it, it's painful because you're always second guessing everything and thinking with the with the one exception. And this is really an exception uh, of Final Fantasy 12. Um, I've seen quite a lot of that because I, I was recently back in to do work on the HD version. Yeah. Has anything changed? I was going to ask about that. Has, has there been any kind of amendments? Uh, I forget whether this is public or not so my apologies uh to to square <laughs> if it's not um i know that they they did add in it is public that they added in all the stuff from the international version yes yes yeah and so there was a lot of translation with that well not a lot actually uh, there was a small amount of translation for the game systemy stuff yeah uh, you know the tutorials are expanded uh, and that sort of stuff so that was one aspect of the work that we did um, phew, and so you, you felt okay going back to that it was like oh this is this is quite good I every time I look at it I'm really pleased uh, I mean I know this is sort of ringing my own bell although I'm also <laughs> ringing Joe Joe Reader's bell here uh, and patting him on the back because he's uh, he was every bit if not even more responsible for the the, the quality on that game and um, yeah just very uh, very few instances where I'm like, oh, maybe that could have been a little better. I mean, I really think that we we were given enough time, yeah, and things really came together in the studio. Uh, you know, we had a lot of ideas going into it, but we also really got great actors, and we were working with Jack Fletcher. This is an, he's another huge part of that game, at least you know from our perspective, just looking at the localization. Um, Jack was was instrumental in making that come together um you know not only is he, is he a great director in the booth but um we had sort of done a trial by fire on ff10 and 10.2 by that point so he would know if i didn't like a line read just by the way that i was breathing <laughs> at that point that's and good. so that's a really good kind of unit you know you know you're firing on all yeah no, no, no no having that kind of shorthand is is great when you're in a recording studio for 10 hours or something, it gets a little crazy. Uh, back in FF10, I think they would, the sound engineer would play, he had one of those submarine ping sounds. Okay. Uh, and he'd play that when things started to get a little batty in the booth because we'd just been there for too many months. 
you know, staring at the same <laughs> script and we would just start laughing about, you know, it's like that three in the morning thing where you start laughing at everything. Yeah. We would just get very, they call we called it tanky cause it was like we were in a, in a fish tank, you know? And, um, uh, yeah, like I, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'd be, be remiss. I, I don't want to keep you tonight. I've been we with chatting for ages and it's wonderful, but, um, it, It'd be remiss of me not to, to mention Phoenix Wright because it's a much loved series. Is there any kind of I don't know fun stories about the working on the Phoenix Wright games? I did. So I only worked on number one and number four. Okay. And number one, I think, was really a, a test case for Capcom. They they really didn't know. In fact, they anticipated that it would not sell very well in the states they made a very very small this is back in the days of cartridges they made a very very small print run or cartridge run yeah uh and it sold out immediately as i recall and so there was a delay getting yeah yeah because it was a big hit um and they weren't expecting that at all uh nor was i which was great because (laughs) i had no pressure this was i did it entirely at starbucks uh this is the aforementioned Starbucks across the okay. park from where I live in Western Tokyo. Uh, did I think I did almost the entire game there? Just go in in the morning, get a big coffee, crank away at my laptop, and um, it was me. And then there was an editor at the translation company that had hired me. I was working through an agency. This is after I went freelance. Yeah, and yeah, no, it was great. Uh, for me, it was just uh, the fact that it was humor was very freeing because translation is such a lossy process. Uh, lossy in the way that, you know, when you're recording your your vinyl onto your mini disc player, you're losing a lot of yeah. the tone. And, uh, or gee, even on the cassette tape, you know, it, it, you end up just losing a lot because you can't get every part of a line or a joke through into English just by the very nature of it. So you're freed because it's a comedy. It has to be funny. <laughs> so, you, and you can't use the Japanese jokes for the most part, although there was so much humor in that game that was not based on the language. I mean, it's a, it was a fantastic, especially the first one, I think, was so well-written. And that's another thing that uh, isn't talked about enough in translation. When you have a really good script you get a much better translation because the translators spend much less time fixing the problems in the original and making up for a lack of imagination in the original. If you have a script that's firing on all cylinders and that's what like the Monsono scripts, Vagrant Story and Final Fantasy 12 to a lesser extent, I guess. um, But really, really well done. And, and Phoenix Wright, uh, the first one, uh, Ace Attorney was, um, so well done in the Japanese that that just really it's a huge leg up because if it's funny you know you know how the scene works if the, the scene structure itself is working and you don't need to futz with that at all absolutely yeah I mean you, you yeah. mentioned that you've you know, written a bunch of novels so you, you have that writer's instinct and I imagine that that could be <coughs> horrendously frustrating from time to time if you're dealing with something like this is just can I just start from <laughs> well, scratch it's here a, it's a very different uh, you have to get your head into a very weird space, especially when you're dealing with sp- like spoken dialogue. Say you have a poorly written, not naming any games, but say you have okay. a poorly written scene um, and it's all voiced with action. There's a very limited amount of things you can do to fix that. 
and fixes in one scene will always have repercussions in other scenes. I, I remember one particular very long square game where I had changed a line around um, in a later scene, referring to an earlier scene because the earlier scene hadn't set up the line that they wanted to refer to properly. Okay. You know, th- you know, they do callbacks in Hollywood where you refer to something that was said earlier. Yeah. <clears throat> It wasn't a properly structured callback. Uh, they were calling back to something that no one would remember. Instead of calling back to the great line that was at the end of the scene, that was sort of like the ending. And I'm sorry I'm being so vague. I don't want to no, like no, no, cast dispersions on the. Anyway, um, I had to. I, I changed around the last, the later thing, and then and the writer happened to be in the room when we were recording. He was like, "Oh, why? Why is this different?" Because <laughs> he spoke a little English, and and I like, oh. <laughs> Oh yeah, um, I made this change because uh, it worked better in English. He lied, and and then we had to figure out how to fix that because I had uh, mistakenly stepped on the toes of some character development that was going on. Right. Um, by changing the line, you know, the line was supposed to be uh, a character sort of accepting his father and that sort of thing, and and because I had changed the. The line they're referring to, you know, the scenes I felt worked much better, but then you lost that character development. And so, they, but that's actually a good way of getting back to what we were talking about: translation being very lossy. You're going to lose stuff like yeah. that. And so, when you're doing comedy, um, it's very, very helpful to have something well written because you essentially have to write, which means you need characters, and a writer has the characters in his head. And those characters sort of speak through the pen or the keyboard as the, as the writer is writing. Yeah. And a translator has the characters in the original game. And they speak through you very specifically <laughs> about what they want to say. And um, in the case of Phoenix Wright, I had great characters to work with. You know, they're very inspiring. Okay, this is the bumbling detective. You know, this is the guy who thinks he's God's gift to women. This is the, you know, you have these like great stereotypical characters with lots of texture. And um, so it's a solid foundation to work from. And and you can essentially just write those characters then at that point. Um, you know, boy, if the original was bad, then the translation would have sucked too. Absolutely. Because there's nothing, you know, you're handed a... And and I've I've had this happen to me quite a lot, but um, sorry, Uh, I've had this happen to me quite a lot where you just have um, nothing to work with and you kind of have to make it fly in English and, you know, you end up doing a a mediocre job because that's the best you could do. Um, Not so with Phoenix Wright, fantastically written game. Well, uh, how is your relationship with games now? Do you feel like you're you're playing games more now than you, you used to? I think I play about the same amount. Certainly more than I did in college when I did have that kind of stepping away yeah. period. Uh, though games for me fill a very different role. Uh, I think I used to really intensely game the games, you know, the, like Minotaur and... Yeah. Uh, then later, Civ and all and and World of Warcraft uh, sucked away many many hours of my days of my who's kidding years of my life. <laughs> um, the games are less like that now. In fact, I, I sort of actively avoid 
those intense all-in games. Um, yeah. I'm much more of the, I want to go blow off some steam, let's play Rock Band. Um, I think we've covered all sorts of brilliant, fascinating stuff. Uh, is there anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to mention, or if you want to just let people know where they can find you online? Uh, sure, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm uh, at Mark Aokaja, which is A-O-K-A-J-I-Y-A. And are you still actively doing, like, working in translation? Yes, I am. Uh, I am doing games. I'm actually going to L.A. for recording next week. Is it uh, anything so, you're allowed to talk about? Nope. Okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lame thing about games is that the NDAs are, are fairly thorough. And so uh, I can't wait uh, until we can talk about it because it is a very fun project. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what's going on now. Also, been working on um, something I can talk about is Final Fantasy Record Keeper, okay, which is a mobile the mobile game, uh, and that's been a great sort of trip down memory lane for me. Is that like a kind of book of lore almost, or pretty much? It's essentially one of these mobile games where you you get to run characters from you know heroes from past iterations of Final Fantasy fighting classic bosses. Oh, that's quite fun uh, and uh you can hatch eggs that have new heroes in them and you know that kind of thing uh and <clears throat> yeah yeah it's fun and it's also great for me because I'm, I'm getting to read all of this stuff about the early final fantasies in fact i think i know more about the early final fantasies now than i ever did and you do love working. world building yes exactly exactly um well cool so well, that, that that was uh that was an amazing chat Alex. did you are you happy with that you enjoy yourself Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, I definitely love... T- Rarely people actually ask about games, which is funny. Oh, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And you worked on one of my favorite games. It's, it's become a running joke that I'm always bringing up Final Fantasy XII, but I really do think... I really... Well, I, I approve. Things. I approve. I'm very it's, looking uh, forward to the new, the new version. It looks amazing. I've seen it on a 54-inch screen or something. And uh, yeah, it looks great. <laughs>